0: Welcome to the Directors UK podcast. In this episode, we're treated to a fascinating discussion between two outstanding filmmakers, Shaka King and Barry Jenkins, as they discuss Shaka's latest film, Judas and the Black Messiah. Together, they discuss staying true to the story of Fred Hampton, directing the film's many amazing performances, working long distance on its brilliant score, and so much more. Just a heads up, there's some strong language in this episode. We hope you enjoy it.
1: Um, all right, how you doing, Brother King?
2: I'm great, man. It's good to talk to you. Good to see you.
1: Yeah, good to see you too, man. Um, all right, we'll just jump right into it. Uh, it's my, my second slash third time um, seeing the film. Uh, it's uh, amazing seeing the evolution of it from the early screening that you so graciously invited me to um, to what's out in theatres and for me on HBO Max um right now which we'll talk about a little bit later um but what i wanted to talk about first to start is i've kind of you know we met at south by years ago years ago in that little speed dating uh speed dating thing um and then you went off and made uh, newlyweeds and now you've you've made this you know very different films you know between newlyweeds this filming your shorts so talk to me about, just real quickly, the process of arriving at Judas and the Black Messiah and kind of evolving your voice because the filmmaking on display in this film is just, it's like a whole other level from the work you've done in the past.
2: Thank you Barry, thank you Barry. Um, wow, well, you know, I, I think I've, in terms of where I started and uh, kind of my roots in, in comedy and I guess dramedy, um, it was just my sensibility in a lot of ways like I've always been someone who uh laughed through difficulty and found humor in, in in difficulty and challenges and so um I think when I started making films uh in college my junior year of college I started you know making black and white shorts reversal so that was just kind of the I was just ex- really just expressing what was inside of me um and I think around grad school, you know, I mean, the truth of the matter is, if I kind of look back and think about my childhood and you know how I got in the movie, watching movies, I got, I got in the, rather into movies. It was watching movies with my mom, and my mom liked crime movies. She was always a fan of gangster movies, and I liked watching. You know, that's the first time I saw Goodfellas was with was with her. First time I saw Casinos with her, and I, I was into those films. Um, But I never thought of myself as ever making anything like that. I think until grad school, when I, you know, discovered like Sidney Lumet's work, Um, you know, I think that was the first time I watched the Friends of Eddie Coyle and the things I liked about comedy, which were really just small naturalistic moments I found in those films. Mm -hmm. And I actually found those moments incredibly funny, you know. Um and they just did, they just connected to something inside of me. I think part of it also is, you know, a lot of those great ones are based in New York. And being from New York, being, you know, born when I was born, listening to the music I was listening to that was sampling a lot of those movies, uh, I, I think it just connected to me in a in a in a funny kind of way. Um and so, you know, even after I made Newly Leads, one of the first, you know. Things I tried to sort of make next was a, a TV show about a cousin of mine who was a contract killer in the 1980s uh, and as a teenager. Um, and, you know, I was trying to pivot from, you know, my sort of comedic voice because I knew that the, my favorite movies to watch were were specifically crime dramas um, and, you know, of, of of that era, the 70s and, you know, early 80s specifically. Um, and, you know, I they just, they really liked the the deck that I put together. They liked what I wrote, um, but they just were like, "What makes you think that you, you can do this?" You know. Uh, and so, I was directing television and was content doing so um, until the Lucas Brothers in 2016 came to me and said, "Hey, we have an idea for a movie that's about Fred Hanton and William O'Neill, and we see it as The Departed in the world of Cointelpro." And so, for me, I immediately thought this was just a genius idea i mean one it was the only way i recognize i recognized it was the only way you could get a fred hampton movie made in hollywood and i also recognized that the only way you get a fred hampton movie made is if you could make if you made it with a studio just because the, the scale you need the amount of money you needed, there was no way to sort of make that independently um, and so i i thought that was a sharp way in but it also is an opportunity to marry, you know, I I talk about my stuff being funny and me like, you know, kind of exploring like satire in my past work, but I always just, my family, you know, my mom gave me the spook who sat by the door in seventh grade. You know what I mean? You know, they, they raised me with a certain politics. So all of my work has had that, um, Since I, I mean, the first one of the first movies I made in college was uh, a documentary about the effects of global capitalism on rap music. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Um, And you know how I thought it was ruining it. Uh, And so it was like, wow, I get to sort of talk about stuff that's important to me in Judas, and also explore this tone aesthetic that I I love um and show and i always felt confident that i could do it because to me filmmaking is filmmaking you know like and and my favorite filmmakers are those who whose tone is you know unclassifiable in a lot of ways Mm uh and who can who you know surprise you they made this and then they like Sidney Lovett he made this thing and he made this thing it's like whoa, those two things how are they seemingly related you know the Wiz and you know find me guilty like same dude made that, you know? So, um, it just was like, you know, it, it, it was the perfect thing for me.
1: Yeah, yeah, and, it, and it's kind of it's dope. I was, I was hoping you touched on that a, a little bit because I do think, one, you know, how do we make, uh, 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 not even a biopic, how do we tell the story? How do we present Fred Hampton in a way that does justice to the man? You know, I think you do need a certain amount of scale, you need a certain amount of resources. Um, and I think the way you guys worked yourselves into uh, the project, I think telling the story within a certain genre sort of schematic, I think was really brilliant. And I think one of the things that's really successful about the film is that it is a thriller. You know, it's a bona fide thriller. You know, and yet it also is a very clear eyed depiction of Chairman Fred and all these young people, you know, and the risks and the sacrifices uh, they made. So talk to me about what, uh, and you can go as deep or or maybe it's better to go not, not so deep into, you know, when yeah, because I've worked at a studio as well. You know, I haven't made a movie at a studio that is as a legacy as Warner Brothers. And yet the fact that you pull this thing off and I see both your voice, you know, I can feel the Lucas Brothers. You know, we're directors UK, you know, Sean Bobbitt is a, a lot of these folks is watching Countrymen. You know, I could feel all of y'all sort of like making y'all's contribution and yet it's still very much you at a studio, which I never thought I'd see in a million years, bro. <laughs> so, <laughs> talk to me about again, you know, maintaining your, your sort of verb, your thrust and still telling the story of order, Brothers.
2: It was, um, I had the benefit of ignorance Mm -hmm. in the sense i had the benefit of two things ignorance and no desire to make a studio movie Mm -hmm. so i and especially coming from tv having to direct writers work and them being the final arbiter in terms of what this thing was going to be and you know chomping at the bit just to get another shot to like have control of the story when i got in you know the, the first Notes meeting I had with Macron proximity Ryan Cougar's company and Charles King's company, I had those dudes on the phone with me for twelve hours because I was just like fighting. I didn't know, and and this is why you know I love Ryan for I'm a, I love Ryan for a trillion reasons. But one thing that that dude did that I mean it just is a testament to his patience was he was so fucking patient with me. He let me do that for months. Like he let me just say no and fight them for months, man. And drafts and drafts and drafts until like maybe like the sixth draft or something we were on. And he was like, hey man, <laughs> you know, and it's and again he did it with such like grace and, and patience. He was like, look, you know, the movie, when we take it to the studios, it won't get made if you move like this. And he was like, think about it this way. He was like, hey, think about the fact that you want this movie to get to as many people as possible. And he he shared a story with me about Fruitvale, his experience taking Fruitvale around the country and basically only screening it for white people at festivals and black people not discovering his work until Creed and not even going back and seeing Fruitvale and him realizing just what, that's really what inspired him to make studio films was a desire to have his work seen by his people. And this movie in particular, like, we understood, I, mean, I was making this movie for black people, you know, first and foremost. I, I mean, it was to go wide, obviously, but my my first audience was was gonna be black folks. And so when he put it, that was one thing he said to me that made me sort of reconsider my approach in terms of just like being so protective of the material. and And, and another thing he said to me that was, again, a testament to just his understanding of people, because he knew how to make, I realized like a, a, a really good producer directs the director. And, mm-hmm. and what he did to me, he said to me, he said, you know, he said, look, man, you could, you could look at this as, as an opportunity to try to satisfy other people's desire and yourself, your, your own desire. And that's an opportunity for growth. He's like, and I don't know about you, but I like to challenge myself." And I was like, yeah, that's exactly what you should say to me. You know what I mean? It was like my kink. Like, yeah. yes, I do, need to, I do need to challenge myself.
1: And I'll say this too, as, as someone who's now transitioning into producing uh, as well, um, I think in those six months, it wasn't that he was letting you spin your wheels. Uh, I think he had to make sure, you know, this is a movie made at a studio, but it's still your film. And so it was important that it took a lot to move you because instead of you moving, you know, a hundred yards away, just move mm-hmm. five feet
2: right. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm.
1: still go be on the same path, uh, going down the same lane. And it's kind of what I see um, when, I, when I see the film. And I think the thing you said that was really crucial was, you know, I think there is, there's an audience, like, you know, you mentioned The Departed, you mentioned, I don't know, you mentioned Goodfellas, you know, all those are studio films, by the way I say. I know, but, I know. Receiving information, their modes of receiving characters that audiences are used to. I think framing Fred Hampton and his story, the story of, of of the Panthers and all these wonderful things these folks did. You know, I think framing it through that way is like what I, call, I like to call it the Flintstone vitamin. You know, it's kind of like the play- <laughs> in a certain way. You know, it's good for you, but it tastes good as hell. You know, I want to get deeper into into the film. You know, there's a couple of things I want to talk about. I want to talk about Daniel a bit. I think he gives an amazing performance. I want to talk about your style a bit. You know, you working with uh, with Sean. But first, I want to talk to this conundrum I assume you had to have had. We know how this film is going to end or at the very least the core audience that you were considering. They know how this film is going to end. How do you approach them telling a story? You know, because I'm going to play my card. This doesn't feel like a march towards death. You know, I think it's one of the most successful things about the film, even though you know what's coming, it still feels incredibly vibrant and vital. You see all these young people flourishing. Just tell me how you wrestled with that conundrum, how you unpacked it. And then on set, working with Daniel and Keith and all those folks, just keeping, keeping that life force going.
2: I mean, you have, to, you have to keep, in terms of the movie itself, there has to be a certain lightness to it. And I think that is something that we're borrowing from Scorsese, who makes these dark movies that are so fun, you know? Mm. And so it had to, the music had to play a certain role. It had to be beautiful. It had to be pretty. There had to be a lot of color in it, even though it was going to be dark, you know? Um, and, you, you know, you have the genre element to lean on for the entertainment value. And then you have a, a love story at the heart of the film. And you have, you know, great actors who are really, I mean, you know, film sets become, you know, a family. You know, mm-hmm. and that, I mean, I, I, if it's a good film set, a healthy film set. And this was that times a trillion. I, part of it, I think it helped that we were shooting in Cleveland where mm-hmm. there wasn't really much to do uh, outside of the work. Um, and so, but we also just, I mean, you know, before, everyone sat down and, and and I got to work, like, you know, we had a, a dinner for the Panthers and started a text group and like, just like made sure that folks hung out, you know, throughout the process. And um, just, it, it helps when you have a guy like Daniel, who is a leader. In one of our first conversations we had, um, and not even one of them, our very first conversation we had, we talked about leadership and just a, about how, you know, in, a, in some ways, he and I both, um, amongst people we know, there are people who look to us for advice, for 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 guidance, you know, um, and he identified that. And so him identifying himself as a leader and, and him owning that, I think played a major role in um, just take, he took it upon himself to build that family in Cleveland and he wasn't the only one. I mean, I got to always shout out Daryl Greg Gibson, who plays Bobby Rush, ironically, co-founder of the Illinois chapter. Bobby really, I mean, I'm sorry, not Bobby. Daryl, again, really took it upon himself, even though a lot of the, most of the movie is just his, him, his face. He, he wasn't, you know, he didn't have a ton of lines in the movie, but he owned that, he owned that role and he brought it to his behavior in terms of just like creating a, a you know, a family on set with, with his other actors.
1: Yeah, it's, it's cool. I'm glad you mentioned uh, Daniel. I actually have a, a cool story about him. I saw him in a short film. I'm trying to look it up right now. Years ago. This is really cool short. It's called Baby. It's uh, I think it won the BAFTA for best short. And uh, he just plays this dude on a on bus. He has this encounter with this, uh, with this woman who's the lead of the film. And I always thought that dude, that dude is going somewhere. And, uh, and then you know, he did Get Out and Black Mirror, all these different things. And you mentioned him as a leader. Every time I finish a film, I always take a trip. When I finished Bill Street, I actually flew to, to London. Just, I just go somewhere, where won't nobody know me, I just hang out. And uh, Get Out was doing, it's like a war season thing. And I walk into this bar and I look in the corner and Daniel was sitting in the corner of the bar. And this cat, at this point, he's everywhere, his face is everywhere, he's huge, he's got Golden Globes, this and that. He's sitting in the corner of this bar and there are all these young black British filmmakers sitting there with him. And he has stepped off the award circuit to literally come back home and break bread and say, how are you doing? What do you need? How can I help? And so when I saw that you had cast him in his role, I was like, yes, perfect. Why, because I've seen him do it on screen, I've seen him do it outside the screen. Now, what I wanted to ask you though was, the cat is always serious, man, he's always so serious. <laughs> so the scenes with him and Dominique, you know, the real love scenes, man, they just have, you know, it's interesting, it's like, you think of Fred Hampton or MLK Malcolm X, all these folks, you know, you think of them as, he's larger than life figures, you never get to see them sit at a table and eat a bowl of cereal, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. You know, have pillow talk uh, with their loved ones so again how did you balance how did you and Daniel decide you know when he's in front of these folks he's got to be this chest got to be big but this is the place where you know what I'm saying he's just another dude.
2: I mean it was it started honestly with the dialect a year before we started shooting we met for four days and just worked through you know, the the, the differences in, in tone, you know, because, and I compared it to that Busta Rhymes song, Touch It, you know, mm-hmm. I was like, you know, I was like, you know, Daniel, when you're giving your speech, you're, turn it up, you know, what I said, and then when you're with Deborah, it's like, you know, and, and, and so we first came at it, you know, we first came at it just from a sonic level, that's <laughs> what it is, <laughs> you know? And he laughed too, I was like, but it's really, that's the way to sort of approach it. And and not just when you're talking to her, but like when you're when you're with your comrades, when it's just like, y'all, you know what I mean? Um, and we recognized too that, especially as the movie just was getting sliced down and sliced down so that we could make it as tout as possible, um, that there just wasn't a lot of space for levity in the movie. And there wasn't a lot of space for um, intimate connection. And so you had to make those moments really count so that they were, they a allowed the viewer to just like take a deep breath. Also, we took the time to, you know, turn this icon into a man, you know, and really make clear what he and his loved ones sacrificed, you know, mm-hmm. in deciding that they were going to, you know, try to really do everything they that they possibly could to better this world. Mm-hmm. Um and so it was just being really intentional with those moments. And I mean, I remember we uh, when we shot that scene at the end that appears at the end when um, Fred talks about his mother babysitting Emmett Till. Uh, we started, I think, I just was like, look, we, we have that scene, but I, w- I wanna just get an improv of the two of them in bed, just so we have it. Because I, I was like, I think we're gonna need Something like that down the line. And we grabbed them improvising, and that's the close up you see, uh, you know, af- I think after between the Rainbow Coalition montage and Fred going to prison. And the funny thing is, they're saying something completely different. Like we just stole that. And then I just studied their faces later and it was like, okay, we'll write this. And then they ADR'd it and it worked. Uh, but that scene, is so, so deeply important, you know, to show that these two people didn't just sleep together. And then, you know, she went, he went to prison and she was pregnant and he just stepped up. Like you needed that moment to make clear they've been building towards something. They, they, they're making plans and their plans got interrupted by the U.S. government, you know, when they sent this man to prison. And, they, and there's a longing there you know and, and even even though that longing you really don't see gl- you see mere glimpses of it you see it in how she's you know obviously carrying this baby and thinking about the fact that she's alone with this with the secret really right now but also and, and then you see it in the moment when she you know he's reading the letter but really so much of it is happening off screen and it it only works off screen because of that one moment that you know the, that that pillow talk there you know um so yeah, it just was like being very, very intentional with with that stuff.
1: Yeah, it's it's cool, man. I, I think, you know, Daniel's performance, you know, people write shit, I, mean, I read a little bit of it, you know, I wanna talk, talk about a little bit of it. You know, it, it is a very big, boisterous performance when, that's, when it's appropriate. It's also very small and, and in some places um, unsure, um, I think when necessary as well, I'm thinking about, scene with um, with Miss Winters, you know, after, um, after Jimmy has passed away. Um, I'm thinking about that scene where, I, and I, you know, I was watching it again last night and it's the only time where Daniel says something in the film and I'm like, wait, what did he say? It's almost like, I can't, it's like, she says, I think she says, I have it written here. It don't seem fair that that's his legacy. And and he says something in reply. He's like, yeah, yeah. I mean, she's like, you gotta tell him, Chairman. And he's like, yeah I'm yeah. Going. And
2: he says, yes, yeah, she's, yeah, I know, I know.
1: Oh. Because it's like, he, even he is thinking, like, can I? You know, it, it's in, in a way, it kind of speaks to kind of speaks to the necessity of a film like this, you know, about a character like Fred Hampton, because we assume everything he said was said at 100 decibels, you know, but he was a man just like anyone else. And I love that in that moment and within this performance that is really powerful from, from Daniel is this, this thing where I'm like, oh, shit, he is unsure. That's right. He should be yeah. unsure. Give the to of the world on his shoulders, and he's looking at this man's mom. So, yeah. um, so shout out to you on that. But don't don't Thank say you. nothing. I want to move to my next piece, man. So you you you've built this ensemble of uh, uh of characters of actors, and actually I do think uh because you know being with the pandemic, we don't get to hang out with folks a lot. You know, I did see uh, a lot of joy. Joy, what did is the French word for it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. All these young folks are hanging out, and you know what I'm saying. They, you know, they try to teach themselves, they cracking jokes and shit, they carrying weapons. That shit's kind of sexy. You know what I'm <laughs> um, but what I really loved was the mix of ages across the cast. You know, um, you know, I, I know some people say, Oh, we should have cast 21-year-olds to play 21-year-olds. Some of these folks are actually 21-year-olds, you know. I think about Dominic Thorne, who was in uh, A Bill Street Could talk, and I love that this woman is in scenes with Daniel and Lakeith. And they all feel like they the same folk. I mean, and she was her own in this film. Um, so again, talk to me about building this ensemble and also knowing when I look at Fred Hampton, I don't see a twenty one year old man. That's not fair to him, but that's the life that he lived. Um, and I was thinking, because you know, I'm casting something right now. I've been casting shit nonstop for the last five years. I don't know who I would have found. <laughs> I don't yeah. know if
2: that existed. Dale,
1: when he made this short baby in 2010, he could have walked right out of the damn short and walked, walked
2: right into this role, I think. Mm-hmm. No, it's, it's, it's true. It's like I've, I, too, have heard the, you know, the critique of Dale. So one thing that's interesting to me is, in some ways, when you see that he's 21 in the postscript, it hits different because you've been watching a dude who was way older, and, it, and yet it's like, whoa, what the fuck? That dude was 21? And that's the way to play it, in my opinion. But yeah, in terms of the casting, I mean, it, I, when, we, when we set out to write this thing, myself and Will, versus my co-writer, our first couple of drafts were Battle of, Al- Battle of Algiers, you know, because in doing the research, we found that there were just so many, you know, folks that we wanted to shine a light on, like Doc Satchel and, you know, Wanda Ross and, and just people that I'm, I'm saying names that you're not familiar with, but they were as important to the Illinois chapter as you could argue Fred Hampton or Bobby Rush were. You know, they were the ones who started the medical cl- medical clinic. They were the ones who, you know, started the breakfast program. And we were like, we want to elevate these folks, you know, just the same way we're elevating Chairman Fred Hampton. Um, and then we obviously run into, ran into real estate issues, you know, and so you had to reduce that. But I still wanted that feeling of this is an organization. This is not a movie about a man. This is a movie about an organization. And, you know, when when he goes to prison, it's a great opportunity to show that, you know, and so it was like, OK let's, you know, you're always gonna wanna cast the best actors possible, but let's also cast recognizable actors in those roles as well. So that Pete, so that, just, you know, even having, it was very intentional to cast Jermaine Fowler as Mark Clark, because mm-hmm. Mark Clark, you know, is the other person who, Mark Clark's the hero. Yeah. That the way, you, when the Panthers talk about Mark Clark, they, they they talk about Mark Clark, like, that's a hero. He woke us up with that gunshot, mm-hmm. you know? And in the ceiling, you know what I mean? Whether he let it off intentionally or not, like he was, he was on guard that night and he lost his life. He he was assassinated as well as Fred Hampton, mm-hmm. you know? And so it was like, I want to cast, who's the, you know, thank God Jermaine is is closer to Lucas brothers or I, But I was like, mm-hmm. I want to cast someone who's recognizable. Oh, that dude's going to be in, you know, coming to America too. Let's make him Mark Clark, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and so, yeah, it, it was and I was fortunate to have like folks like Ashton Sanders who's usually like number one or two on the, on the crew, you know, on the call sheet and, and Algie Smith, same deal. Just be like, yeah, I'm down to be a character actor in this one.
1: Yeah. You know,
2: it, it's 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 worth it. You know,
1: well, let me get in here for a second because we got to get to audience questions. And uh, as everybody watching, watching, I'm having too damn good a time and, and um, I don't want to run through or step over to audience questions. But I do have one last one before we move to the audience. Um, it's a studio film, it's a studio film. And yet, uh, and, and, I, and, and if Ryan is involved in this, you can let me know, because he pulled it off of Black Panther as well. Mm-hmm. And yet there's still a line, kill a pig satisfaction. Mm-hmm. And uh, talking about algae, you know, uh, Jake Winters still pulls that trigger. You know, mm-hmm. talk to me about navigating, um, you know, retaining that, that, that sort mm-hmm. of and
2: and that it, You'd you know. be surprised when I'd say that it didn't come up in conversations with the studio. But I think the reason it didn't come up was that they knew how diligent we were in terms of putting forth Fred's words as unedited as possible. So, you know, the fact is he did say that. And if you don't put that in the movie and it comes out, you know, people are gonna say, you left this out of the movie, you're lying. You, You completely sanitized this person's image, you know? And so it was like, no, you have to put that in the movie. You have to acknowledge that he, he spoke those words. And how do you do it? It was, it was very, we had to figure out like, how do we do that so we make it clear that that's not why he was killed? Because, mm-hmm. you know, he, did, he wasn't killed for saying that. They, they wanted that. they wanted to kill him, you know, <laughs> because he was feeding children. I mean, look, they, 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 that had nothing to do with it. And that was, we, even the way that we, you know, Jake Winters is not present at that speech. You see Jake Winters leave, storm mm-hmm. out, on his own, and then Fred gives that speech and Jake Winters is nowhere to be found. So you didn't want to connect those two things in terms of Fred saying something and Winters acting off of that. But at the same time, we did want to show that O'Neill could, then, could use that, that act by Jake Winters to try to manipulate the Panthers into doing something even larger, even worse.
1: Yeah. Ah shit, man. I want to what ask a follow up on that, but I gotta get to the audience questions. What I was gonna ask was shit. I'm gonna ask it. Would you, did, was it scripted that way that you knew? Let me make sure I get I get Winters out before the speech because I don't want to connect. Or was that editorial?
2: It was editorial. We shot it, and he was. It was editorial. It was. It was because I watched it. I said, oh no, we can't. We can't do that. You know. Um, <laughs>
1: It's so hard, though, because I, I, I find myself sometimes in the same place. And, and we're we going to get into it a little bit now, because it's like you, you do you don't want to have to be considering those things, because what if he was? what if he mm-hmm.
2: But he wasn't. But he, but but I also knew I also knew for a fact, talking to the Illinois chapter, that that was not that was not him acting as a Panther in that moment. Gotcha. He was a Panther. He was he was a Panther. He was, the story I was told was that he was in an abandoned building that he hung out in. So Jake Winters was, loved, his family is a gun loving family. He comes from a very militaristic background, just familial. And so he was a guy who did carry a lot of guns on him. And he did have a place that he stashed guns. And apparently, I don't know what happened. I don't know the, the specifics, but there was an instance where he was in this building with his stash and there was a shootout with him and the police it had nothing to do with the panthers whatsoever but because he was a panther and because he did kill some police officers and was killed himself the media was like panther shoots cops and it was just it was it was a way to it was a way to legitimize the the plan to assassinate chairman fred hampton with this act that wasn't connected to him or the party whatsoever you know
1: and i just think it's 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 I think you've done very well with managing the responsibility of knowing the power of juxtaposition. It's kind of what I was trying to, trying to get at. So I was curious if it was on the page or if in lining up the scenes, you realized the power of juxtaposition. Let me make sure this thing isn't overpowered by the suggestion of juxtaposition.
2: And, and also the last thing I'll say is in terms of Fred saying those words, for me, it was like, never forget that this dude was 21 years old, yeah. you know? Like you don't, you didn't even give them a chance to sort of think that through and walk that back. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? That's the type of thing, I, if you, you, I can't imagine. I mean, the things that I was saying at 21 years old, uh, you know, I got kidnapped by the police when I was 16 years old. That trauma, I was out of my mind in terms of the shit I was saying about cops when I was 21 years old. So like you just have to also remember this is a young, a very, very young person in a very emotional state Yeah,
1: I think that's clear. And I think, you know, to talk, we talk about craft, we talk about cameras, lenses, I think performance is craft as well, and editing, because I think Daniel does a great job of riding the wave of the audience in that scene. And there's a couple moments, because I remember when we did the we did the rough cut. I was like, yo, that long lens close up you got going. I was like, man, just hey, just drop drop a take in and just let it run. Cause you see Daniel, he, he looks left, he looks right, he turns around, he comes back in his eyes to start. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? But hey, I'm gonna get to the audience question real quick. It's a follow up of what you were saying before I cut you off. Uh, Adam says, I was fascinated with Daniel's performance. He says, Daniel Kaluuya. He shows him in respect. Daniel Kaluuya's performance during the scene where Bill shows his stash of C4 and proposes his plan to set up the Panthers. Bill tells Fred that he's just doing as Fred said during his speech. And Daniel's performance is so subtle, but his face shows this realization that he has this influence on people that may take his words in the wrong context. Can Shaka talk about that, um, as well as how he managed to? Uh, depict quite a balanced outlook to everyone's point of view in the film rather than feeling this and falling into this good versus bad tropes. I think the first question though is crucial because I noticed the same thing is what we were just talking about. The
2: chairman is very, it's powerful, vulnerable. He's, he's like the, the whole, his whole arc is a weird one because you're crafting a person who goes from superhuman to human, and that is when he becomes most powerful. He starts out being like, I want to protect the people, and by the end, he is the people, you know, mm. and so you, you want to see from the time he goes, from the time he's in prison and finds out that his, you know, the headquarters has been burned down and maybe his comrades are dead. That's the beginning of him just becoming a more vulnerable person, becoming, you know, just a a guy, you Mm -hmm. know? And so in that moment, he's just, listen, he's just like spoken to his dead comrades, mom. He's got that weighing on his mind. Now he's got another party member talking about committing an act even more dangerous and, he's just like is it my fault am i responsible and and it's a very very small thing that daniel did but it's 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 everything you know and so it was that was in the i mean that was in the text and and we were clear on what that moment was supposed to be about you know and in terms of O'Neill, the last time you saw him besides the dream he had where you know he shoots himself in the head was at the high off the people speech where it's the only instance that you've seen him even give glimmers of being politicized. You know, yes. he's feeling, Fred's getting to him. Mm-hmm. And so so you last time you saw him, Fred was getting to him. So when he's talking about blowing up federal buildings, you're supposed to believe, oh, shit, this dude's sincere. This guy's worked up because his comrade was just killed. He's, he's, he's been radicalized. I, I've and, seen
1: it times, and every time I see it, I'm like, is, 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 is Lakeith real? Is, is he? Because I'm like, damn, I, I think he might be. And also, its is it a legitimate question? I mean, I don't know. It's like, especially because, again, as I said before, we know how this ends. Right. right. We know how this ends. You know, what I love very early, you go, war and politics, war and politics. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. There's, there's, this, there's, this, there's this moment where between that speech and the two of them in the scene with the C4, they are kind of having this debate. Is it war? Is it politics? And because he's 21, he's like, well, shit, it's kind of both. But I don't think I got this kid on the way and blah, blah, blah. We need the school. We need the clinic. You know, it's um, you do a beautiful job of building this this massive snowball. It's rolling downhill. And at the moment when maybe the, the, the message could not the message, the message is clear. Maybe the tactics could evolve. It's too late. It's yeah. too late. Um, yeah. All right, we'll move to the next question because I'm eating up all the time, man. I'm sorry. Um, Could Shaka take us through his process for working with Sean Bobbitt on the cinematography and the references they used and also how that combined with his decisions on the striking color palette? The striking color palette. The striking yeah.
2: palette. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. And any all right, so it's,
1: okay. Yeah, go, go ahead, Brian. And any coordination that was been done with uh, Charlize Jones and the costumes on that front, too? I'm
2: so, so glad you, you mentioned her. And I also got to mention uh, Sam Lisenko, our production designer, because it was really sort of a, a three-headed monster in terms of the look of the movie. Um, so actually I, I, I was like thinking I might get asked about references. And so I brought up this list of movies that um, I told everyone we should watch. And I watched all of them. We together watched a good number of them. We didn't get through all of them, but it was Thief, Eddie Coyle, Rockers, When We Were Kings, Nashville, A Prophet, No Country for Old Men, Devil in a Blue Dress, Seven, Heat, King of New York, We Own the Night, Malcolm X, Prince of the City, 80 Blocks from Tiffany's, and Warriors. Um, yeah. <laughs> oh, and, and Battle of Algiers, we watched as well. Um, and, you know, in terms of the color palette, I had about 300 photographs of the West Side of Chicago from 69 to 73 that my friend Akeem McKenzie gave me, production designer. And um, that was the, that was, that was the basis. You know, I took those to Sean in our first meeting and we looked at them and we were like, well, this is what we're looking to recreate. Um, Those movies I mentioned, we borrowed a little bit from all of those for different scenes. Um, And I mean, we were really blessed in finding Cleveland as a location because it's stuck in time. So everything, every scene, but the apartment was shot on location and Sam, got down there about a month and a half in advance and just did a bunch of scouting. And he stumbled upon what Sean and and I was started calling Panther Green, which is the green that you see in the headquarters. It's a green that also comes back in a big way in the people's church scene. And so when you kind of look at that as like your canvas to kind of play with, and then Charlize comes in and she's just adding color in in the, the costumes. And the costumes did so much lifting in terms of, you know, even developing with Keith's character, you know, you 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 really learn about him in a lot of ways in the way that his outfits progress throughout the film. You know, um, and by the end, I mean, if you know, if you notice, like he's so the the, the Illinois Panthers. They, I think, part of it was like being in the Midwest and the cold. They didn't really wear a lot of leather. They wore more like army fatigues and stuff like that. And so. We put O'Ne- O'Neil, I think, is the first Panther you see in a leather jacket besides Palmer, who, you know, he's Palmer's like Palmer is in Warriors. There's I forget. I think the name is like Cochise or something. There's a character in Warriors who's just like this sort of quintessential cool dude in the 70s movie. And I remember... To being like we need one of those because people's idea of the Panthers is that they were all that but and I was like you don't need all that I was like but you need one of those dudes so I was like Ashton's that dude because I was I I literally was on his Instagram and I was like know yeah, that's a 60s motherfucker right there you I was know, like I'm gonna
1: when they go back into the bar and he has the hat on the head, like, that's way I'm like I'm like, LaKeem like, dumbass should have had the hat on <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah I mean he looks,
0: nope.
2: You look so he's a cold guy, he's smoking a cigarette every second he's smoking a cigarette. But, but you the know. thing
1: is you know, it's I think it was really smart to to place that because I mean I mean shit. I love I, I, I always expected when when uh when Fred, when Jeremy Fred comes out of prison and he walks by the uh, the the portrait of UEP Newton, I almost <laughs> thought he was gonna look didn't even glance at it. He just kept it moving, he just kept it moving. <laughs> Yeah. Um, all right. I, I, I got to get to another question. There's a quick one. Um, uh, Anand says, uh, from one brother to two others, quick question about whether you boarded the shots or found the blocking, et cetera, on set.
2: Most of the blocking found on set. We only boarded the uh, stunts.
1: All right, but what about the opening Steadicam, uh, steadicam scene? Because that, that shit is... We didn't avoid
2: we didn't, we didn't that. We blocked that on set. I
1: remember when I first... Ask me this. Is it is it a little bit different than the rough cut I saw? Because, I mean, again, the first time you no. watched... The, I remember there being... That's the
2: same. Cut. That's the same. That's the same.
1: Because I remember it being all the way from outside to inside, all the way back outside. But there is one cut he has hallway on the pool table, right?
2: Yeah, that's the cut. That's the cut.
1: The reason I'm sure the people watching this, they probably only seen it for the first time. I've seen it three times now. And that's how it is. This is what we do. As you start watching it, now you're watching it. And I'm like, oh, where's right, the cut? Right, right, right. I, I was like, this is a sexy-ass film, man. Craft-wise, you know, it's very serious. Yeah. You know, it was yeah. <laughs> um, I got I got another real quick one, uh, which was... Uh, hey, Shaka, great film, lots of food for thought. Why did you decide to start the film with the track by the Watts Prophets? Tell me the significance of that for you, including set of the tone of the movie. We got somebody. Oh, I love
2: it. Yeah. James love-
1: makes <laughs> deep <in> crates, Brad. <laughs> yeah.
2: So um, I love that poem. It's, it's just an amazing poem. And I remember the first time I heard it, uh, I just kind of grabbed it and I was like, okay, let me just hold this. Because it might get in the movie somehow. I was like, I was like, if I can start the movie like this, then it's mine. Then it's my movie. I know it's my movie. Because I was like, there's no way I'm going to let you start the movie like this, right? And so for me, it was like a couple. I, so I, I, my, I come from the, like, a culture of, of like love and emceeing. And I love double and triple entendres. And so for me, saying that, like starting the movie with that poem is talking about the Panthers. But it's also talking about us, you know what I'm saying? It was like, yo, yeah, we're letting you know, like, this is, uh, this is ours, you know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? Like, you're gonna think that because it's a, you know, Fred Hampton movie coming out of Warner Brothers that it's, it's gonna be like, you know, we're gonna make Fred Hampton a liberal, et cetera, et cetera. So it's like, no, like, this is, this is our film, we're, we're doing this. And like, and that, that was a statement with that piece there, you know, it was like, it was a double entendre, you know? Um, and it just is such a. It's just the the voice work in that poem is so good. It's like it's not just the words. The words are one thing, but the the vocals on that poem are just so incredible. Like I I, there, you're like no one sounds like this anymore. There's there's almost you know I I think another thing I love about those old movies, those old crime dramas of the seventies is that like. It's a, the dialogue, the way people talk in those films, they just don't, those those voices don't exist anymore. And on mm-hmm. the end, when you listen to the, that poem, you're just like, no one sounds like this in the world anymore. You know, um, it sounds like that era. And it was like, when we when you hear that, your mind's gonna go to that era and I'm gonna have, I'm gonna start the movie there and I'm not, you're not leaving there until the credits roll, you know?
1: Yeah, it's dope. Cause it, it reminds me of something um, that I used to say, I think is very true about this film, which is from the very first sound, you know, this film isn't gonna tune its ears to you. You have to tune your ears to it. You know, you have to come and meet this film um, on its terms. Uh, another question by Vicky. Uh, I really love the different things of music, especially the romantic scenes, and they reminded me of the tender moments in Rocky. How did you approach the score with the composer and what was your inspiration?
2: It's a, you know, I wish we had more time to talk about the music because it really happened the way it happened because of the pandemic the The compo- you know Marcus Mark Isham and Craig Harris were supposed to basically uh, kind of like elevators to the gallows, get a bunch of jazz musicians in a room, improvise to the movie, and then notate take the score. But the pandemic happened, and so uh, I reached out to Zach Cowie, who's a music supervisor. I met through Jesse Clemens, and we he and I had talked maybe a year earlier, just we both had the same vision for the music, which surprised me because. And I would played the music I wanted to put in the movie, people would be like, yeah, okay, we'll see, you know, but Zach independently like gave me a, a mixtape and I was like, there's like four songs overlapping here, you know? And so um, he came on board and the, the music you're thinking of in terms of those tender moments with Deb and Fred is actually Bill Evans symbiosis, right? Uh, that's, that's, that's not com- composition, but it was a mix of kind of needle drops that Zach found Craig and Mark, Really doing an incredible job of sort of taking that 60s jazz Bill Evans horns kind of Gil Evans rather horns kind of sound and you know just like contemporizing a little bit, making it cinematic in the sense of turning like horns into strings, you know. Uh, Mark did something brilliant in identifying um the inflated tear by Rusan Rollin Kirk as something we should come back to and basically do an interpolation string wise. And we bring that back a bunch of times in the movie. So it now the movie is really steeped in the inflated tier in a lot of ways. Um, and then I have to acknowledge the contributions of Quelle, Chris and Chris Keys, who are just friends of mine that I had in the edit bay with me, you know, just watching cuts. And one day Quelle was like, I like this movie silent, but you should, I, I got something I think I hear. And he gave me this percussive piece that sounded nothing like any of the music in the movie, but it worked great for that shootout at Panther headquarters. And I stuck it in there and I was like, let's see what folks thinks. The producers really loved it. The studio really loved it. Mark hated it. And Mark's the veteran film composer on the team. He couldn't stand it, but he was, because he comes I think from a jazz background, he was like playing ball, playing ball. And then one day he was like, listen, let me just compose some stuff around this to make it like more cinematic and kind of hit the beats in the scene that it's missing. And he did that and it changed, it was like perfect. And then we were like, okay, now we have a sound here. Why don't we look at other scenes that could require some tension and see if Quelly and Chris can come with some of that, some of those percussive elements. And Mark and Craig can structure some stuff around that. And that became, you know, the sort of action Movie sound that you hear in the film It's surrounded largely by jazz, soul, and you know film film score. It's like a, it's a hybrid of a, a few different things, but, I, but that I, I really love.
1: Yeah, I think it kind of rides the same wave um, that the characters arrive in, in, in the in the piece. You know, it it, it kind of in that way, it kind of all feels of a piece. So it's interesting to describe for you to you describe it. You know, in such idiosyncratic ways, these different uh, uh, phrases. I like to call them um, of the the score. You mentioned Jesse Plemons, man, and people haven't talked about him a lot. Um, you know, as regards his film, I remember seeing both the rough cut and now seeing this. I think he gives a terrific performance because he's he's the character in this film that I'm like, I hate this dude from the first frame. I'm like, I I'm supposed to hate this dude, and even though I find myself. Um, still quite disliking this character and what he stands for. Um, I think he is a human being. And I think Jesse does a great job of, of, uh, of not overplaying his hand but still playing this guy as a human being. Uh, talk to me about from the page to working with Jesse. You mentioned him by name so it seemed like y'all got along pretty well.
2: Oh yeah, um, me and Jesse got along great. Um, you know, it was intentional for us. I mean, and, and you, you know from seeing the early cuts we had too much of him in mm-hmm. the early cuts. But it wasn't so much that we were trying to humanize him as much as for specifically our, our white audience and like our white liberal audience. We wanted to show um, just how toxic being a white centrist can be, how dangerous it can be. You know, how um, a person who you watch, and I think a lot of people, and it's what was really, I loved this experience. I didn't get a lot of experiences to see it with a lot of people. I got one before the pandemic hit. But in that screening, it was like three white people and three black people. And their read of that character was so different. And the black folks couldn't stand him from early in the movie, they didn't trust him from the beginning. The moment that he could compare the Panthers to the Klan, they were done with him, you know? Mm -hmm. Whereas the white people were like, I don't understand. He seemed like a good guy. And then suddenly he makes this transition, you know? And I was like, that's so fascinating. And I was like, I kind of like this because folks were just like, what are you talking about? Like it was, and I was like, this is good. We're on to something here, you know? Um, because I wanted to show that, I want to show a guy who thinks that he's doing the right thing. And then he finds out he's not doing the right thing, but still proceeds in doing the wrong thing because he doesn't want to sacrifice the comforts of his life. He, and because he doesn't trust he does like it's, the, it's this idea of I support black people, but I don't want to defund the police. It's the same exact logic where it's like I you, you don't you, you're you're still scared of us. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like he's you don't want to admit it. You don't want to acknowledge that you hold these beliefs that you that you know, deep down are toxic. But at the well, same time, you don't want to change them either. Abandon them.
1: The reason I love the performance is there's that scene, we talked about it with Daniel, we talked about it with Keith, and we talked about it with Jesse now. They're all in that room. When the chairman gets out of prison, he gives the big speech. And there's a version of this movie where you cut the Jesse's face, and he's like, he's, he's, he's feeling it, he's feeling it. But then he goes outside and he has this crisis of conscience and you still realize he has to do the bad thing. He doesn't feel it at all. And, and at that point, I'm like, yeah, <laughs> I hate curse, but, but I was like, yeah, and he wouldn't. And he wouldn't because he's not about to sacrifice. He's not about to make that sacrifice. Um, no, no. I, no. A real, uh, a dope job with it. All right, we're, we're getting close to the end. I got to ask this question. If I was in your seat, I always hate this question, man. I hate this question, but somebody asked it, so, so I'm going to ask it. If there's one thing you'd like uh, the audience to take away from, from your movie, what is it?
2: Um, there's not really one thing, but uh, I think, I hope that, like I said, I, I said it multiple times for a reason that, you know, I, I want people to really take in what it was like to at 21 years old and in, in your teens or early 20s to really sacrifice your comforts and your 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 safety um, to heal your community and and try to better this planet. Like I think when you think about a lot the fact that you know a lot of these folks lost their lives. Some of these people are still in prison. Mm-hmm. Some of these people are still exiled. People are alive. You know, I think that you have to just acknowledge how heroic an act that is. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that's one thing that I think is valuable.
1: Right word. And then a follow up on that, Um, a question just came in, you know, I think they're gonna, they're gonna slide, they're gonna give us the uh, Sandman Shuffle at the Apollo after this. Um, uh, Hi Shaka, I've been waiting for this film since forever without even knowing it, without even knowing it. Uh, Brilliant work. My question is, how do you know when you're done and the film is ready? And are you ever truly satisfied with putting it out there?
2: Um, in this instance, I knew it was done when all these different parties who hadn't been satisfied were all satisfied with one movie. Mm. Um, and that was like, oh shit, we're, I guess we're done now, you know, mm. uh, because I was happy, my producers were happy, the studio was happy and the family was happy, you know, as happy as everyone could be, you know, everybody still wanted, uh, oh, I wish I could have that, but, I think I, I know. As time progresses, everybody's like, "I love. I'm happy." You know what I mean? Like, like you know, whether we got a we we didn't get a C, you know, we got a B, we got somewhere between a B and an A plus, you mm-hmm. know. And I'm happy with any of those because we knew what was at stake with this with this film, and we well, knew the, what it could be. Even
1: that dude who for six months would was was the immovable object. Is that dude still happy with the film? You know, or is it still is it still?
2: Oh. I'm, I'm, I wish you, we had more time because there's specific conversations like, I want to, I mean, I'll, I'll go over people, a couple going over a tiny bit just, I want to talk a little bit about the end of the old version because you and I had a real, there was a, so there's a there's a, a scene or there's something missing now, but basically after the assassination, when you're on Deborah Johnson's face, we used to cut from that to a title card that was similar to the title card that starts the film and I it said it. I missed it I going to to I want them to about know about this. I want no, I want you to I want you to know about this too. Cause this okay. this blew my this changed my life for real, for real. And so it said 30 pieces of silver, right? That, on that cut and it had the same music that you hear over the title card as in this one. And it had a piece of graphic design that Terrence Nance did. Shout out Terrence Nance, where um we had the O and of was in the shape of um, the black, the Emory Douglas leaping Black Panther. And there was kind of like that public enemy crosshair over it. Um, it was a crazy piece of graphic design. It was striking. The music was just popping. It was, a, it was an amazing cut. And, you know, Barry was like this moment you have to really hold on to, you know, but especially in that old cut that had a lot of issues. And he was like, this moment feels like you. He was like, this moment feels like you, you know, and you really need to fight for that. And I and it was something I've been fighting for because I wanted 30 pieces of silver so to be the title of the movie. And I I'd, I'd lost that battle. And so this was my way of getting it still in the movie. And it was like a good, it worked to transition between scenes. And I still got tons of pushback. I got and I got pushback from everybody about it. And I, I fought them, fought them, fought them. And I'm the right, we're a week, we're a week out. And Ryan and I are having, a, we're having like the most tense conversations we've had on, in, during this process because now it's coming down to the final picture and, you know, I'm a, immovable a on some things. You know, he and the studio are movable on other things and we're just not finding common ground no matter what, what happens. And he and I had like four, three hour, like long conversations at night that changed my life for real, for real. And one thing he said to me, was something that I'd known um, since grad school. He was like, yo, you know I love your work. He was like, but sometimes your work is more cerebral than emotional. Mm -hmm. And I knew that since grad school, one of my heroes in my class class was uh, my friend Kyle Scott, who was to me, of all of us, the guy who got the emotion that part of filmmaking, he just got that shit from day one. And I was always like, man, I wish I could do that, you know? And I thought with this film, I'd done it. And to hear him say, nah, you ain't done it, it was like a knife in the gut. And I was like, fuck. I said, okay, because I, tr- I trust him so much and I trust his opinion so much. I said, okay, let me go back and look at this film and let me really interrogate how I'm getting in my own way. And I started thinking about my, I started thinking about Life stuff. Like I started thinking about being from New York, growing up in the 90s in New York, how like the dudes in my childhood prioritize style. How like so many New York filmmakers have are masters of style. Scorsese, master of style. Spike, master of style. So I just started thinking about like how style has been too, maybe been, maybe I've been getting in my own way with style. And so I said, okay, especially in the back half of the movie, we're taking out style. It's gone. We're slowing this movie down. This shit is gonna be slow, regular ass shit. And it's gonna be quiet. And we're just gonna like, and we're just gonna cut the style. And I, I took that title card out and I hung on Deborah's face like way longer than we had.
1: So, you well, know? so I was say, the upshot is, the upshot is, uh, unless you got more, because I will say, the upshot is, 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 you feel her a hell of a lot more in that moment. You do, no question. No question. There is a charge that 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 the cut to the title was that it was it was intellectual, but it was still stimulating as hell. But it wasn't about him and it wasn't about her. You know, it kind of took this place where I could see the whole endeavor. But if I'm up here, then I'm away from him, I'm away from her. So I get it. And I was like, like,
2: like, you gotta, I was like, you gotta be with her. I realized it in that moment. I was like, you gotta, I was like, because then when you cut to that, to the, to just Mitchell just chilling, you're like.
1: Well, yeah. You know. well, here's where I get to say, it's good to be me. Cause I got both. I got to see. <laughs> and I got to see the very emotional because you're right. She, she crushes that shot. Even that's it's style, but it's style that services emotion that really defocus her, super shallow foreground. I mean, it's dope. You did the right thing. You know what I'm saying? Well, Ryan's a lot younger than me,
2: but he's a hell of a lot smarter than me. He's and wise, so- man. He's wise, wise cat, man. He's he's
1: a right. Wise cat. I'm glad you brought it up. I want to talk about it. That shit
2: was dope. Yeah. Hey, yeah, I loved it, man. I was hard to get. It took me like. A year
1: to- that shit is one of the hardest cuts I have ever seen in my <laughs> life. It is so, and the fact that you that you stepped off it, that you decided this thing, even though in a vacuum, I'll say, because you can't say it, it, was fucking brilliant. It's not the right thing for the piece. And so I salute you in that, bro. I salute you. I'm glad I got to see it. <laughs> I'm glad I got to
2: see yeah. it. I salute you. Thank you, man. Thank you, uh, man. Thank Yo, Barry, thank you, man. Thank you, man. Thank you for everything, dude. Yo, you have no idea. Yo, thank you so much, bro. Thank you so much, man.
0: This podcast was recorded at a Directors UK member event. You can hear more episodes of the Directors UK podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or your favorite podcatcher. Directors UK is a professional association for film and TV directors with over 7,500 members. Find out more about us at directors.uk.com.